The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Are you familiar with the term integralism? If you move in Catholic circles, certainly conservative Catholic circles, then you certainly will be. It's an exotic, countercultural, and I think bizarre political philosophy that essentially seeks to return nation states to Christendom. You may not think there's anything sinister about that, but depending on which variety of integralism you adopt, that might involve depriving non-Catholic citizens of fairly basic civil rights, sometimes in quite a frightening way. On the other hand, some of the most interesting and creative thinkers in the American Catholic political landscape, in parts of which integralism is fashionable, especially in universities, are impressed by some of its contentions as part of a wider post-liberal alternative to what they see as the failed liberal project of modern democracy. The American political philosopher Kevin Vallier has just published a book, All the Kingdoms of the World, from Oxford University Press, which has created quite a stir Kevin can't be accused of being a Catholic culture warrior. He's actually Eastern Orthodox, has never been a Catholic. It's a very fair-minded treatment of integralism, but nonetheless pulls no punches in examining its implications. Integralism is an angry movement, just as its mid-20th century precursors were, and there have been some quite inflammatory exchanges on Twitter in the last few days. I think that's been rather unnerving for Kevin, but nonetheless, I'm very glad that earlier he agreed to talk to me. Kevin, thank you very much for joining me. I became aware a few years ago of a movement in the Catholic Church called integralism. Now, this is a word I associated with sort of quasi-fascist, vaguely theocratic, ultra-nationalist movements like Action Francaise, various authoritarian Catholic movements in Europe in the middle of the 20th century never really got anywhere. And I was astonished to see it cropping up in both British and American Catholic circles as a serious intellectual proposition. And I wrote a piece in the American edition of The Spectator. Basically, the headline says it all, medieval fantasists have infiltrated American (laughs) Catholic right. And just to give you a little flavour of the worst of this strange authoritarian movement, I quoted something from Integralism, a Manual of Political Philosophy. It's co-authored by English-Dominican Father Thomas Crean, and as I say, woke it is not. Here's a quote. The husband has by natural right the authority to govern his wife so the family may attain its end. If her domestic duties are not thereby harmed, the wife may, by her husband's consent, labour outside the home, although in a well-ordered society this will not be necessary for the maintenance of the family. And I thought, on what planet do these people live? You, in your brilliant book, use measured language than I do. I mean, I basically portray the integralists as sort of medieval fantasy role players who've mysteriously attracted a couple of intellectuals. Indeed, it's revived as an idea by intellectuals. But here's your nice, concise and fair description of integralism, and it reads as follows. For the integralist, 
any good society contains the church and the state. The state can be democratic or monarchical. In short, God can authorize a king directly or authorize the people to choose a constitution of rulers, but church structure is fixed. Whatever form the state takes, an integralist regime is one where the state submits to the church, the Roman Catholic Church, that is, of course, it goes without saying. Without submission, the government is not integralist. Such submission also implies a certain degree of integration between church and state, their constitutions, laws, and procedures aim at a certain harmony. And I look at the statistics of church attendance in even the most Catholic countries and in the famously religiously observant United States, falling off a cliff. And I think, as I said before, what planet are these people on? Could you explain to me how these propositions which seems to date at the latest from, I don't know, the 1930s, but read more like 19th century documents to me. How can intellectuals seriously advance positions that are never going to win enough popular support and never going to be grounded in enough demographic religious observance to exist outside of a, a computer game? What's interesting about the British integralists, who got started about 10 years before the Americans, and the British integralists are more interested in articulating kind of what's best, um, rather than anything strategic. And they're also particularly interested in church reform rather than American politics. So that's um, one thing that distinguishes these two groups that I call theorists and strategists. So the theorists got started up precisely because of the observation that the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in Western Europe and the United States, is going off a cliff because their view was, here's the problem. No association can maintain itself unless it takes itself seriously enough to punish its errant members. Everyone in a functional association has to be subject to certain kinds of rules. And they thought, basically, the church had lost its understanding of itself, that they see as historical of itself as a polity with its own constitutional procedures and rulers and um, laws and policies. Um, and they thought, look, if we could revive that understanding of the church, then maybe, you know, the church would recover because it would be a really a, an association that takes itself seriously again. But then they added the part that gets people really wide-eyed, which is they said, well, it's not enough for the church to just be a spiritual polity. Like maybe we should excommunicate people more. No, actually, the church has to be recognized as a supreme polity in the entire world with the goal of ultimately bringing Christian states into some kind of uh, partial submission to them. The, the key about the submission is it's submission where the state's policies bear on the spiritual agenda in the church. So on integralism, the, the church can't take over agricultural policy on the grounds that people need to eat to go to mass, right? Um, but it'd be, it'd be things like communication controls, educational controls. Um, things meant to promote the spiritual good of the people. And so the thought was, okay, look, you've, you've got the church as a polity, but also it's recognized sovereignty and political supremacy over the state, not total, but, but partial, not always direct, but indirect. And they think that's the kind of ideal, the model that the church should try to move towards, even if it can't really get there, because otherwise Catholicism isn't going to recover. So actually this all started with the sense that Catholicism was collapsing. Well, let me quote again from your book. You say, representing the integralist position, 
while the state should protect the religious liberty of the unbaptized, it should also protect the baptized from spiritual harm. These duties can compete. The unbaptized could use their religious liberty to degrade Christian spirituality. So far, integralists have articulated no principle that resolves this conflict. But the proper resolution is of the first importance, you say. Suppose the state prioritizes prohibiting spiritual harm. It might suppress the religious rights of non-Catholics. Yet, if it prioritizes the unbaptized, it could endanger the souls of the faithful. Now, that all sounds a bit of a mess, but let's take the first sentence there. While the state should protect the religious liberty of the unbaptized, it should also protect the baptized from spiritual harm. At which point, I feel like I'm listening to the witterings of Marxists talking about their utopia. Which state do they have in mind? Now, I can understand French Catholics well, during the 19th century imagining the restoration of a, of a Catholic <laughs> state. I can imagine various fascist dictators. Like Maestro, yeah. But can you name a Christian state in the 21st century? I mean, even one? So, so first, I should just clear something up for the, uh, the listeners. So the Integralist position involves the reinterpretation of one of Vatican II's most important documents, Second Vatican Council's most important documents, Dignitatis Humanae, which is its statement on religious freedom. And it's very clear. It says the human person has a right to religious freedom. Uh, they are to be immune from coercion by individuals, groups, or any human power, that this right is grounded in the dignity of the person is made in God's image. It seems totally unambiguous, right? The thing that's the difficulty is that it does seem in tension with at least some encyclicals from uh, Leo XIII and Pius IX in the 19th century. And some traditionalists have wanted to say, oh, well, Dignitatis Humanae is out. The council was wrong. And then there have been more faithful conservative Catholics that have just taken on the main, the, I think, the obvious reading of Dignitatis Humanae. So around 15 years ago, Thomas Pink, an incredibly talented uh, philosopher and philosophical historian and church historian. And a very nice guy, uh, I have to say, a very nice guy. Yes. No, he's, I've learned a tremendous amount from him. Yeah. Um, and so his thought was, okay, you know, I'm a faithful Catholic. I've got to take all these teachings seriously at the same time, right? I can't just reject one of them. So he works on this idea of continuity, particularly between Leo XIII uh, and his teachings on church and state and the Second Vatican Council. Now, here's the way that Pink tries to resolve things. It, it's creative, even though I ultimately don't think it works. He says, well, look, what the Council Fathers were interested in is defining the rights that the individual hold against the state. They're not trying to define the rights of the individual against the church because the Council Fathers could not agree about it. And so Dignitatis Humanae is not about the powers of the church. So far, so good. But, Pink says, one of these powers on which Dignitatis Humanae was silent was the power of the church to authorize the state to support its spiritual agenda. And most people read that and say, no, 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 there's religious liberty against every state. It doesn't matter if the church authorizes it. The church shouldn't do that because you have a right of religious freedom against the state. Like that would be the dominant view. But Pink thinks that's too uh, discontinuous with the past. What he ends up saying is, look, right now, yeah, people should have total religious freedom. But maybe if the church changed its policy, it would be able to go back to the older arrangement where the baptized were under the spiritual authority of the church. You can't restrict the religious liberty of the, of the unbaptized. The church doesn't have authority over them religiously. And so Dignitatis Humanae is clear. Yeah, you can't coerce the unbaptized 
really at all, except to follow ordinary morality, which isn't really significant for our purposes. And so you get this in Pink's work, this the state treating the baptized really differently, the ideal state really differently than the unbaptized. So ultimately, that's where that division comes from. And I'm trying to bring out attention because I think integral state would have very conflicting priorities. And just to finish this one point up, which is that the historical quasi-integral estates treated unbaptized people horribly, you know, Jews in particular, I mean, my goodness. Also, it's wrong to think that the extremely civilised and thoughtful and pious Thomas Pink is the only important integralist voice. voice. There, are, there are more extreme integralist voices. The authors of the integralist manual who talk right. about a polity yeah. in which non-Catholics do not have full citizenship. Various religions, depending on their, their distance from Orthodox Christianity, enjoy fewer and fewer civil rights to the point where they can be you know, punished by the state as heretics. You know, one of the advocates, I'm not saying he necessarily subscribes to all of that, but one of the advocates of this very hardline integralism is this Father Thomas Crean, a Dominican priest, who was talking to the Latin Mass Society of England and Wales. And I thought, here we are in a situation in which, first of all, the traditional liturgy is under sustained and vicious assault from the Vatican itself. Secondly, we face demographic collapse of Christianity throughout the Western world, and I wouldn't bet on its flourishing in other parts of the world in the long term. But anyway, the demographic decline is, is certainly catastrophic. We see every opinion poll shows that the views of even of practicing Catholics are very heterodox on certain issues, certainly judged by the standards of the integralist or conservative interpretations of the magisterium. So, so let me say a bunch of things about it. So um, first, a variety of integralists have distanced themselves from the book, some publicly. The book is really problematic in a lot of ways. For instance, there's a chapter defending the permissibility of slavery, even though that has nothing to do with integralism at all. And it's just very strange. Why would they throw that in there? I mean, it's just totally bizarre. It just makes their position look even worse. So um, it's a very strange book. I would say most integralists that I have spoken with would, I think, reject some of its more extreme claims. I think so. So just to be fair to the other integralists, I think Crean and Femister are pretty out there. I think that's perfectly fair to Fair to say. And this, but this issue, some of the issues they raise are real tensions. They just resolve them in a, a way that does seem morally flat. One of the issues is this issue of citizenship. And because an integralist regime could be democratic, and actually Pink has recently said in a public interview, he thinks that integralism could be better as a democracy than as a monarchy, because he says the monarchs can do horrible things to the church. Does he and say so, who's going to vote for this stuff? Tom's kind of pessimistic. Um, so I don't think he thinks they're going to vote for it. Uh, either. His interest in it is, um, it's really different than where a lot of integralists are. He's not really interested in the transitional issues. He's interested in more as a kind of ideal to reconcile some puzzles in Catholicism and to create a kind of diagnostic tool that will help us try to figure out why states can behave in malicious uh, and anti-Christian ways. Well, it's one thing to talk about ideals. 
It's another yeah. to explain to your audience, many of whom are quite sort of young, perhaps recent convert yeah. traditionalist Catholics, that these aren't immediate practical political prospects. And as you say, the integralists have given a voice to young Christians, many of whom have grown up alienated from their institutions. They're not especially enamoured of the Constitution, and they don't yes. care about reading it according to original public meaning. They're not proud defenders yes. of the market economy, but demand a new American political order, one devoted to the spiritual care of the populace. They are not conservatives at all. We can better describe them as counter-revolutionaries. Their first goal yes. is to reverse the social revolutions led by Western elites, even with means that most everyone else rejects. So they are demanding a new social order. And we come back to this question of how yes. on earth do they imagine this new social order will be initiated? Yes, yes. And do they ever bother to look at opinion polls which show... Catholic opinion and evangelical opinion for that matter drifting inexorably if subtly and in small stages in a liberal direction now it's all very well for them to say yeah. look at the authoritarianism of the liberals because it's certainly true that the Biden administration for example abuses its power in the most horrible way and seems to have an anti-Christian agenda that I find very troubling yeah. and I find the hypocrisy of Biden's Catholicism absolutely sickening. But is the answer to that to be as authoritarian as the Biden administration? Well, it, it seems to be, but here's the difference. Unfortunately, the extreme liberals are, to an extent, pushing at an open door because although some of their transgender ideology strikes the average person as fantastical and silly and objectionable, most of the things they're in favour of are things that most of the American public, for example, and the European public are in favour of. Whereas there is almost no social support for the very socially conservative measures that these young traditionalists are proposing. Mm -hmm. Do they debate among themselves about the extent to which they would like to see it imposed on an unwilling populace, because they can't seriously imagine mm -hmm. they're going to win any general elections on this matter. This is something I've learned after the book with talking with young integralists. Some of them complain that I've defined integralism too narrowly, um, even though I've acknowledged it can take many, many forms. What they say is, well, look, all integralism is, is that we should have a society where the, are the natural order is ordered to the supernatural order. But that can take lots of forms, and we're not committal on that. So what's weird is a lot of the young people have, have been kind of fleeing the position I thought I was charitably imputing to them by citing, you know, great theologians who held this, like Cardinal Robert Bellarmine or Francisco Suarez or Victoria. The clear views, I think, of Leo Thirteenth. They really like Pius IX. I'm more mixed on him. <laughs> But um, yeah, I thought I was like, oh, you're, you have this like kind of interesting, exciting kind of thing. And it's almost at times where they treat liberalism and integralism as like the only political options. Um, and they try to define liberalism right. really broadly and integralism so broadly. So they actually ran screaming from me trying to ask these questions. Now, there are many young people, young Catholics I've talked to that are very interested in the view and talking about it. And some of the ones I've met since I've been giving talks across the country 
Yeah, they've said, no, yeah, I'm for that. I don't really know a lot about the, the details, but, you know, I want to be loyal to the church and what I think the church teaches. And what I'm going to settle for now is just trying to sort of push back against the woke. And that that has to involve sort of rougher tactics than traditional conservatives think, because traditional conservatives are basically liberals. Anyway, here's the expansive definition of liberalism, right? They see basically everyone in U.S. politics, for instance, as liberal. Well, they throw, the word, they throw the word liberal around very casually yes. while getting very yeah. cross when they think the word yes. integralism is being misused. Now, I think we should point That's out right. that I think in many circles the word integralism has been discredited by some of its advocates, but some of them have said, I think, deeply worrying and objectionable things about the virtues of authoritarian regimes around the world. And absolutely astonishing the people at the heart of the you know, American intellectual establishment are saying this stuff and not being properly challenged. But lots of the people that one might consider to be integralist, judging by some of their beliefs, will say, well, I'm not integralist, I'm post-liberal. And what I see here is that, as has happened on the left, as has happened throughout history, once you get the sectarian mindset, it, it's vociferous. You get the integralists lining up against the post-liberals. You get the Christian nationalists, who aren't Catholics, but have a sort of Calvinist equivalent authoritarian vision of a utopia, equally unrealistic. There's the National Conservatives, not quite sure how they fit in. I think they're a bit more moderate, more political and less theological. Yeah. But on the whole, I think that maybe three or four years ago, there was more of a coalition between these groups. And now it's beginning to fall apart. It's noise and it's self-righteousness. And there's a certain sort of, I find it extremely irritating, Tolkien reading, chin stroking, self-consciously fogeyish intellectualism. Some of them don't like Tolkien, by the way. There's one prominent integralist that really hates Tolkien because he says it makes it makes Catholics uh, unrealistic. I have to say, I have to be Sorry. honest. The thought of reading Tolkien <laughs> makes my blood run cold. It's almost as if, in traditional circles, you're not allowed to be a Catholic unless you're into Tolkien. But look, let's put this in the context of the politics yeah, sure. of the Catholic Church. Traditionalists, many of whom are passionately opposed to integralism, they can see its dangers, they can see what terrible publicity it is, and uh, and they also simply don't subscribe to its propositions. Traditionalists are under sustained, dishonest, sneaky attack from the Pope himself and the Pope's lieutenants. Now, it's no mystery to listen to this podcast that I think this is just about the worst Pope in in the history of the Catholic Church and the damage he's done, I think, may be irreparable. And I think his attack on the Latin Mass is a disgusting assault on the wonderful legacy of Pope Benedict. At a time like this, traditionalists choose to espouse a sort of quasi-fascist, quasi nationalist ideology that appeals to absolutely nobody and also hands ammunition to those people who want to crush traditionalists generally. There's another problem which is related, which isn't so much to do with integralism, which is the tendency of traditionalists to believe in every conspiracy that comes along. And in that respect, they remind me very much of American fundamentalists. But it just seems such a terrible way of protecting yourself at a time when nearly every proposition, apart from some of the anti-capitalist stuff, 
is rejected by a liberal, socially liberal Vatican and a socially, a Pope who at least has decided for political reasons to side with the social liberals in the church. Yeah, so what's interesting about this, it's just fascinating to me. The, there are huge transitional issues with respect to those integralists that, that favor trying to create an integral state. But actually, the bigger problem is converting the church. One thing I've been reflecting on is that when integralism was popular, Catholicism was making inroads in the New World and, you know, was common, you know, and powerful, influential in, in Western Europe. But now we have global Catholicism. We have 5,600 bishops. They're distributed all over the world, different languages, different cultures, different values and viewpoints. So the integralists, they've got their work cut out for them. They don't have a single bishop that's willing to openly endorse their view, not one, of 5,600. So, you know, they're going to have to convert a bunch of bishops who then become cardinals somehow and then vote for a pope that is integralist. And then the pope that is integralist has to decide that it's prudent and proper to reestablish this relationship. At the same time, there has to be a state that agrees with this and that will submit to the modern papacy based in the Vatican with no military uh, or anything like that kind of power. So once you start to bring in the church side of things and what would have to change in the church, the level of implausibility of the view goes off the charts. It was always implausible with respect to a modern state, but it is especially implausible given not just the church under Francis, but I mean the church under Benedict and, and John Paul. I agree. Talking so, of Benedict, yeah. by the way, in one point that, that Benedict always made was that particularly in later years, he thought that the church would become smaller and purer in its yeah. beliefs, an example to the rest of society. So there was a, he did envision a sort of retrenchment. I, I, I think he saw how yeah. unrealistic some of the new evangelization talk of John, John Paul II was. But with these movements, and I, I think there's an analogy, one would say the same to the Protestants who, who entertained this Christian nationalist ideology, is that instead of a smaller, purer church, we're talking about a little landscape of warring Catholic sects, and then on the other side yeah. of the fence, a little landscape of warring Calvinist sects. It's already happening to an extent. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful gift to authoritarian liberals who hate traditional Catholicism. Yes, and yeah, it, it's been fascinating be, uh, that I've been reading some histories of liberalism and just realizing... That even in the forms I think were attractive, boy, there's been a lot of history, uh, hostility to Catholicism. And I didn't really understand the extent of it. I knew it was there, but really reading these recent histories has really impressed it upon me. And I think there's still that element in many people that self-identify as liberals, where they see the Catholic Church as, you know, socially backward and intellectually authoritarian. And yeah, I mean, you know, this is fuel for the fire of misrepresentation. I think one of the most important things for Catholics who are thinking politically is to recover the massive middle ground between anything integralist on the one hand and any full-throated liberalism on the other. I agree completely. Uh, I just want to ask you one question. This is not intended as a hostile question, but you're an Orthodox Christian. You've never been Catholic. Yes. You're, an, you're an Orthodox Christian. Never been Catholic. Didn't the Orthodox world, doesn't the Orthodox world practice its own sort of integralism. I mean, I can hardly think of more unhealthy mm -hmm. relationships between rulers and state. Does that ever make you uncomfortable? Oh, all the time. The interesting thing about it is that the corruption is so manifest when the state and the church 
sort of get in bed together because the the bishops have to be so obsequious to the emperor, which the Catholic integralists reverse. It's just manifest. I mean, I just look at Russian Orthodoxy right now with Kirill supporting the war, and I just think, oh, wow, like that makes me more keen on uh, some form of separation of church and state. Kevin Vallier, thank you very much. And a reminder that his new book, All the Kingdoms of the World, on radical religious alternatives to liberalism, is published by Oxford University Press. Music